Let me tell you, there's a lot of setup when you get up here to preach. Like, I'm not talking about just the sermon notes, but like things you got to prepare for. Like, you got to have your water because you're going to be talking for a little bit and your throat's literally going to be sticking together. Then there's, you got to check and recheck every button and fly to make sure that everything is good to go, you know. And then if you're doing communion like today, you have to make sure it doesn't stay in your pocket because if it explodes, it's going to look like you went to the bathroom. I'm going to put this back here far away where I can touch it. Good morning, everybody. Oh, man, it's so great to be back here. Uh, I am so excited about our topic today. I've, I've done this sermon before at another church, and uh, over the last month or two, I just had it on my, just been burning on my heart to, to give again. Um, history, by far, is my favorite subject. I'm reading about Lincoln right now. Lincoln was in a duel, okay? This man was in a sword duel. That's just awesome. Anyhow, uh, I could sit down and read about cowboys and Indians and covered wagons all day long. Little known fact, my son's name is Cody, and I chose the name because uh, I thought it sounded like a good cowboy name. Anyhow, uh, another fact, I can never be a cowboy because there are no horses that will willingly take me upon them. It's a tough thing for us big fellas. Trisha, <laughs> sorry, I'm putting you out. Uh, so there's this show, you may have heard of it, it's called The Big Bang Theory. I've never watched it, but I happened to catch a little bit of it uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, the characters, Sheldon and Leonard, are always arguing with each other. And uh, Sheldon makes a, a comment to Leonard that, is, that I found to be insulting. He said, um, historians, as a historian, you don't have to know or create anything. You just have to remember what you've found out, and then, you know, you just parrot it back. You don't have to be smart. And I was actually kind of insulted by that. But then I thought, eh, I guess he's kind of right. But then I started thinking again, you know, the mathematician searches for new formulas and abstract principles to, uh, to calculate the world around us. The, the scientist searches for, for new chemical compounds or biological discoveries. And even as I went to write this down for this sermon, I thought, you know, that may be true in these, in these uh, fields like math and physics and science, etc. Those scientists, but those scientists must use what has already been discovered before, before they can discover what hasn't been known and use it for the present. For instance, uh, a biologist who is seeking to understand how part of the body works, say the pinky finger, must, will probably have to study what other scientists already know uh, about the hand. And I don't think studying the present is any different. I feel that in order to completely understand the present, we have to know history. No, this is not going to be a political sermon, I swear. Um, a few people in the back were just like, whew, that's good. But anyway, about the government, no, just kidding, I'm sorry. Um, when it comes to the Bible, the New Testament can be understood far greater when we know and appreciate the history that came before. And that's exactly what I want to do today with Holy Communion. On face value, we can still receive from this incredible moment in Jesus' life. Our Lord, knowing he had come to the end of his earthly life, uses the Passover holiday uh, to create a way for those that love him to remember him. And there's really nothing wrong with just looking at the Lord's Supper that way. But today... I want to invite you all to go deeper with me, to jump down the rabbit hole, to explore the beautiful 
meaning of Holy Communion by looking into Israel's past. So, the first thing we have to do is ask ourselves, what does the Passover have to do with the Holy Communion? Because Jesus instituted Holy Communion uh, on the Passover. If putting it on the Passover was just something Jesus did coincidentally during the Passover holiday, then he could have done it on any day of the week or any day of the month or year. But he didn't. That isn't the case. Jesus gave us communion on the Passover for a very specific reason. And to understand why, we have to go back, all the way back in Israel's history, before temples had been built, before David and Solomon, before judges, and even before Israel was a nation, and even before Israel even lived in Israel. We have to go back to when people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. The Exodus. For hundreds of years, the Jews were forced to do manual labor for the Egyptians. They would cry out to God to be free. And when God deemed the time right, he answered and promised to free them and bring them into a land that was theirs. He raises up Moses and Aaron to lead the Jews and confront Pharaoh. And each time Pharaoh refuses, God sends a plague on the land. Ten plagues in total. And the final one being the most important. God tells Moses that he's going to Egypt and he's going to strike down the firstborn of both people and animals. Except those who do what he tells them to do. Except those who slaughter a lamb and then take its blood and wipe it on their doorframe. And God says that when he sees the blood on the doorframes, he will pass over the home. Moses tells us, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Uh, coincidentally, you can, you can also put blood on your doorframe if you want to keep people away. Door-to-door -door salesmen, government officials, uh, Girl Scouts, just keep that in mind, okay? But don't be surprised if the uh, police show up as well. So, God uses this moment to institute... The Passover holiday. So what did this whole blood on the doorway thing, what was that about? Did God, the creator of the universe, the supreme being, uh, really need blood on a doorpost uh, to cause him to have mercy on the Jews? Of course not. Why am I talking with my mask on? <laughs> Josh, where were you on that one? <laughs> and he, sorry. <laughs> wow. wow. Feels better. Anyhow, <laughs> I'm nervous, just a little. Anyhow, so God didn't need that. If God needed the blood on the doorframe to do that, he isn't much of a God, okay? God doesn't need tools. If God wants to mow a lawn, he doesn't need a lawnmower to do it. He's just going to think about it, and it's done. He has all the power within himself to do whatever he wants. And if God wants to uh, give mercy to someone, he doesn't need a dead lamb to do it. So while this story about the Exodus is a, is a literal historical story, God uses parts of this story, the lamb, the blood, the passing over of his wrath, to look forward to the time when God would pass over our sins because of the blood of Jesus, the real Passover lamb. In fact, 
all of the Old Testament celebrations and rituals find their true and complete fulfillment in Jesus. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of the Tabernacles, um, all the sacrifices and the Passover are all, as the scripture says in Colossians, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That is why we as Christians don't, we don't celebrate the Passover in the first place. Because Passover found its complete and full meaning in Jesus. For about 400 years, check this out. For about 400 years, the Jews were enslaved in Egypt. And then the very last prophet before the coming of Christ was Malachi. And then there was silence from God. Anybody want to guess how many years it was between Malachi and the coming of Jesus? Well, thank you. Who was that? Yes, Ginny. Anyhow, so it was about 400 years. That's interesting. It's a coincidence that I don't think is a coincidence at all. Jesus chose the Passover as the day and time to give us the Lord's Supper. The Passover looks forward to the time when Jesus would take the cross. Holy Communion looks back to when Jesus fulfilled the prophecy and completed the work on Calvary. Now, the meal that is used to, celebrate, used to celebrate the Passover is called the Seder. And it's not like a lamb is cooked, uh, someone says a prayer, everybody eats, and, and you know, everybody says shalom and everybody leaves, that kind of thing. There's an elaborate order to the events of the Seder. There's, uh, there's about 14 steps to the Seder meal. And each one has its own symbolism to it. And the first one is the matzah. It's this flat, cracker-like, white, square thing. Anyhow, when we think of taking communion, we think of this little round wafer that we pick up and eat. But that's not what it was in Jesus' time. It was matzah. Anybody ever have matzah? Yeah, there we go. When, around Easter time, my mom would always get uh, the, the box of matzah crackers, and we would smother the entire thing with butter because if you didn't use butter, it kind of tasted like dried Elmer's glue. And, but if you did it that way, it was delicious. It was great. Jesus, did Jesus up and decide uh, to make a piece of bread and drink as a way to remember him, or was there more symbolism to it? Look at this. Moses tells us, you shall not eat you shall eat no leavened bread with it, the Passover. Seven days you shall eat with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Now, from what I've read, this is why matzah is used at the Seder. The matzah, the unleavened bread, is called the bread of affliction. So it should be obvious that at this point, then why Jesus chose this portion of the Seder meal to be a part of his memorial. Because less than 24 hours later, Jesus would take the greatest affliction ever given to one person. Personally, I like a crispy wafer. I do. Because it likes, I like to hear it crunch when I bite into it. Because it reminds me of be, Jesus being crushed on the cross. So, to the Jew, also though... The matzah bread isn't just the bread of affliction. It's also called the bread of freedom. Why? Because the matzah, as Moses told us in Exodus, was also what they ate as they found their new freedom in Egypt. 
It wasn't just what they ate as slaves in Egypt, but also what they ate as they left it. So there's this dual meaning to the matzah for the Jew, and now it should be for us as well, that when we eat the Holy Communion, the matzah, the wafer, we should remember that it's not just for the affliction that Jesus took for us, but also for the freedom that he purchased for us. Now, when we talk about the wine, that's when things get juicy, pun intended. At the Passover Seder, there are four cups of wine that are drunk. Drank, drunk, I don't know which one it is. And just like everything else at the Seder, each cup of wine has its own symbolism and meaning. Now, if you read the Gospels, with the exception of Luke, when we read the description of the Last Supper, we only hear of one cup that is drank at the the Last Supper, uh, the one that Jesus drank and gave to the apostles. However, Jesus and the apostles were all Jewish men, and from other portions of the Scripture that describe the Last Supper, it's reason to believe that Jesus and the apostles celebrated it in the traditional Jewish way. That is, there were four glasses of wine that night. And as I said earlier, each one symbolized something. Now, most, if not all, commentators generally believe that the reason uh, there are four cups and their symbolism, it all comes from Exodus chapter 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Throat sticking together. Um, So God's words in in these verses from Exodus can be summed up in four phrases. Pay attention. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you, and I will take you to be my people. Each of these phrases corresponds to each glass of the wine taken at the Seder. Which one was the the one used for the communion that we celebrate today? So, uh, for time's sake, I'll just say that generally, it's thought that it's the third cup. If you want to know why, you can ask me after. It's the third cup, the cup of redemption. And not just the cup of redemption, but listen to the whole verse from Exodus. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. What was about to happen in the next 24 hours? Jesus was about to redeem mankind by bearing God's judgment. So we have the bread, the matzah, the bread of affliction and of freedom. And we have the cup of cup of redemption for Holy Communion. Now, there is one more part to the Last Supper, and to me, it is the most beautiful part of this whole thing. And it can be really easily overlooked if we don't have a good knowledge of both Scripture and the history of Jewish customs. Question, which normally comes first for communion, the bread or the wine? The bread. We all know that. So at the Last Supper, Jesus broke the bread first and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, this is my body. That is a really interesting phrase to use. Some of you may recall that when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, God created Adam first. And then what does God use to create Eve? Moses tells us in Genesis, So the Lord God took 
uh, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed, it, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And when Adam met Eve, he said this, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. When Jesus told the apostles that the bread of communion was his body, I believe firmly that he was connecting himself with Adam and Eve. Jesus being Adam and the apostles and us who believe are Eve. That the, rib, that the bread that was his body was symbolically the same as Adam's rib being given and used to create Eve. And to everyone who believes in him and partakes of his body becomes Eve to him. And it gets better. Immediately after Adam meets Eve and falls in love with her, what happens? They get married. They're hitched. They have a party. And they're married. And immediately after Adam and Eve meet, the scripture says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And that is the final symbolism to the Last Supper that I want you all to remember. If there is nothing else, I want you to remember today that the Last Supper, that communion, was a marriage proposal and is a marriage proposal. If the connection to Adam and Eve, Tom, I see you over there, go with it. <laughs> if the connection to Adam and Eve is all that we had to go on, I would be really skeptical, but it's not. Check this out. When a Jewish man uh, and woman were to be betrothed, the man would come to the girl's home and the parents of the prospective bride and groom uh, would discuss the terms. That is, they would discuss what the father of the groom would give materially for the bride to wed his son. And when the contract or covenant was uh, approved, was set in place, the groom would give a glass of wine to the bride. And this was the groom's way of asking the bride, will you marry me? If she accepted, both bride and groom would drink from the glass. And at that moment, they were betrothed, just like Mary and Joseph were, which is as legally binding as marriage. Does any of this sound familiar? You may remember that at the Last Supper, Jesus passes the cup of wine to the disciples and says, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many forgive, uh, for forgiveness of sins. And in this statement, Jesus is not, uh, not only enacted the traditional marriage proposal, but also laid out the terms of the marriage. In eternity's past, God the Father had already planned on what he would give for our marriage to him. His holy, innocent, beloved son's life on the cross. That's one heck of a wedding gift. I don't remember what I gave my wife for my wedding. I'm sorry, Joe. And then the groom would leave for about a year. And in that time, he would build a beautiful honeymoon chamber. And that chamber would usually be connected to his father's house. And when it was all finished, he would come with all his groomsmen, all his buddies. They'd be blowing trumpets, and they would whisk the bride off to the honeymoon chamber and have the wedding feast. At the Last Supper, Jesus told the apostles, In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. John the Apostle, one of the people closest to Jesus, who witnessed pretty much every incredible thing that Jesus did while he was here, wrote the book of Revelation and tells us that Jesus will return again and gather the church to him and that there will be a feast. John calls it the wedding feast of the Lamb. Do you understand? When Jesus gave that cup of wine to the apostles, to us, he was literally asking them, will you marry me? Will you bind yourself to me for life and all eternity? When I stand back to look at this, we are talking from Adam to Eve. We're talking Moses all the way to the Passover celebration the night before Jesus was crucified, to Revelation and the end of time. When I look at this, I'm in awe of God. That God, the master chess player, orchestrated history to show that he loved us from the very beginning. Even a skeptic has to admit that for all these dots to be connected coincidentally and cohesively over the course of thousands of years is unlikely. God has woven his love for us through history and given us communion as a tangible way of remembering that. When we partake of communion, we partake of something so much more than a memorial. We link ourselves to history as far back as Adam and Eve. We link ourselves to the Jews fleeing Egypt through the Red Sea, to God's binding himself to us and his, and his faithfulness to the nation of Israel, to promises that were made over the course of thousands of years, to the plan of God from all eternity, all of which was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And part of the culmination of all these things stands a marriage proposal that we reaffirm, that we reaffirm every time we choose to eat of this bread and drink of this cup. When we come to the table of communion today, or the table cup, we should all ask ourselves, will I reaffirm my marriage to my Savior? Will I marry him? Let's pray. Lord, you are incredible. You are so multidimensional. You are all-knowing, and you are in all time, history, present, and future. And Father, you've given this to us to show that you love us, that you bind yourself to us, and you give it to us for us. Help us remember that when we eat communion, when we drink of the wine. Help us reaffirm our, our faith in you each time that we take it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.